Hey guys, it's Dr. Childs. Uh, today I want to go over um, this this blog post that I wrote recently here. Um, it's about the best supplements for Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And in fact, I just recently went through it, revised it, and updated it with some of the changes that I've been making to how I approach uh, patients with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism and um, how some of the some of these uh, protocols that I've been using have changed over the past little bit. So um, it's always good to stay on top of things as they change. So I just want to go over this again with you guys. So um, and let's just kind of jump in here. So if you want a, a preview of what we're going to be talking about, almost all of it, um, I've gone over here. You can see the list here. But these are the supplements we're going to be talking about specifically. So we've got zinc and selenium, um, which we've talked about uh, a lot in the past because they can just be so helpful. Adrenal support. And I'm going to change kind of the way that I've, I've actually changed a lot about how I approach adrenal um, related issues. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about that. Probably deserves its own video in the future, which I will go over. But um, we are going to be talking about um, kind of how I've changed the approach here. In addition, probiotics and prebiotics, my recommendations have changed a little bit here. Vitamin D3 and vitamin K2. Again, I've changed kind of the range that I go for um, and how I make these recommendations. I've added in new recommendations for what I think is probably one of the most important aspects of health that tends to be um, undermanaged uh, uh, by many providers and 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 uh, patients as well, and that supplements for sleep. And then I'm going to talk about kind of the new way that I approach supplements for GI related issues, how to go about doing that. And then of course, uh, last but certainly not least, is iodine, which kind of has its own, um, which was in here previously, but um, kind of um, we need to we need to talk about that a little bit more in detail. And also not included on this list is vitamin B12. Um, which was previously um, in this post um, before I revised it. So first off, let's kind of just talk about supplements. Basically, guys, what you need to know, supplements can be really helpful. Um, usually not, you know, I, I, I don't like to make bogus claims. Can supplements help? Yeah, they can definitely help. But are they going to fix your problem by themselves? Mm, probably not, okay? And that's just me being honest. I think they're required for an, for what I would call optimal treatment, meaning they should definitely be part of your treatment plan. But just kind of taking a shotgun approach, taking whatever supplements you can get your hands on or you read that are helpful or whatever, you know, is not the right way to do this. And so even when I'm talking about these supplements, I'm telling you how I approach individual patients. These are the nine most common supplements that I use in patients with Hashimoto's, but I don't use every single one in every patient, right? It doesn't work that way. You need to target the target the supplements to what your body needs using um, the recommendations that I've that I that I'm going to be discussing here. So consider that. The other thing is that I really want to pay it, that I really want to uh, discuss here is not all supplements are created equal. Okay, so if you're getting your supplements from GNC, Walmart, Target, Walgreens, whatever, CVS doesn't really matter. Some just over-the-counter type of supplements, and they're really cheap, like on the order of five to ten bucks. You're probably not getting quality ingredients, and in fact, some studies have shown that you're you're not even getting the amount of nutrients that they say you are, right? Because this industry just is, just isn't as regulated, which is one of the downsides of of supplements and new. Um, nutritional supplements is that they're not as tightly regulated as the pharmaceutical company is so or pharmaceutical companies are so there is um, you know you do have to be careful so if you stick to certain brands you don't really have to worry about that necessarily but it is worth noting also you want to you want to target the supplements to your body okay and so what I've done here is I've used the combination of uh, literary studies meaning that there are studies about certain supplements that show that they can be effective in certain conditions right so we want to certainly 
um, that needs to play a role in the decision about what we talk about and how we use it. Um, so I'm going to be talking about that. The second thing is um, I, I want to. I only recommend supplements that I know work. Okay, and so even even though um, even though studies may say that they work, or like for instance. Um, you know, I, I'm just going to talk about this one real quick, berberin, which we're not talking about, but berberin can be effective in lowering blood glucose and helping patients lose weight. And yet I put a bunch of patients on berberin and they don't lose weight, right? So that's one, that's a, that's a, that's an example of where the science doesn't necessarily apply to all patients and it doesn't, um, have the, the same clinical outcome for every patient. So these supplements, I, you know, they, they work. I, I've used them in my own personal experience in my clinic and, and they've been effective. And then also we need to talk about what other other experts recommend. So if you just kind of take a step back, I focus primarily on hormone balancing. But even you know even then I focus a lot on patients who have hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, um, leptin resistance, insulin resistance. So I'm seeing a relatively biased sampling of patients. Okay, and and so I need to I need to step outside of that box and and talk to other providers who see patients that are different than than I see. Okay, so that I know that that even though this may work for my patient population, it actually works for other patients, right? So we need to kind of combine all of these things together to get the list, and that's what I've done here. Um, this is definitely what I would consider to be, and just moving on here, this is definitely what I'd consider to be kind of the basic supplements that Hashimoto's patients should at least consider using. I'm not saying go out and get every single one of these, but but do consider these things if you fall, you know, and, and if you have the symptoms that we're going to be discussing or, or even lab tests. So Again, you can kind of look here and, and see a list of it, but I'm going to jump right in. So, number one, zinc that I number one that I want to talk about is zinc. Uh, this is this is a supplement that a lot of people tend to be deficient in. They don't really know about it. Um, things can get tricky when you test for zinc um, in the serum, so I don't necessarily recommend doing that um, always. I mean, you certainly can, but just realize that that a lot of these serum tests fall short. Um, in terms of assessing how much is intracellularly. They can absolutely test how much is in the serum, but intracellular, the intracellular concentrations are what we care about a little bit more. But why would you even consider using zinc? So first of all, zinc boosts, uh, or can potentially, I should say, boost T4 to T3 conversion, right? And we want that. Uh, T4 is, is just the inactive reservoir of thyroid hormone. T3 is actually the active form of thyroid hormone. So patients that may have higher levels of reverse T3 should consider this because their T4 is being routed down the pathway to reverse T3 production as opposed to T3, free T3 production, right? So they actually have a double whammy because T4 as the substrate has a choice. It can kind of go left or right down the river, um, left, you know, and just in this hypothetical example, left being, you know, uh, the good uh, T3 and right being the um, reverse T3. But you got to consider there's only a, so much amount of T4 that can, can go one place. So if it goes down the wrong path, not only did it not go down the good path, but it also went down the bad path. So it's kind of a double whammy. Now, now zinc can potentially help improve that. Um, zinc's been shown to lower inflammation, acts as an anti-inflammatory in the body, which is great. Uh, actually is required for proper immune uh, function and signaling and regulation. So it, it has important uh, functions on the immune system. Um, can actually act as an antioxidant and reduce free radicals, so that's pretty good. Um, the the product that I generally recommend uh, is uh, zinc on the order of, you know, 30 to 60 milligrams or so. You don't really want to do more than that. And my recommended um, product type would be zinc bound apicalinic acid or zinc picolinate. The reason is of all the of all the different kinds, zinc citrate and I can't remember the other types off the top of my head right now. But other other forms of zinc. They don't, they're not all equally absorbed, right? That, so what matters in these supplements is they have, you know, the base status of the supplement and then it's bound to something, right? It's like a carrier, carrier uh, molecule to help it either 
um, with absorption or whatever it is that you're trying to do because sometimes you want it to be broken down in the stomach sometimes you you know it wants to be absorbed you know distally like in the terminal ileum so you you want to account for that you don't want it to get broken down and destroyed in the stomach you want to make it through this you want it to make it through the stomach intact get to the you know duodenum or jejunum or ileum for absorption so they bind these these uh, supplements to different um, carrier molecules so to speak and that that impacts absorption um, now the interesting thing is a lot of these these things that they're bound to changes the price so cheaper supplements tend to be bound to cheaper quality or cheaper uh, um, subunits so it, it changes the absorption um, and how much is there and so zinc picolinate or zinc bound to picolinic acid tends to be the most well absorbed so quick primer on zinc second one is selenium same thing selenium is really good especially for Hashimoto's can be I should say not always but again may help to boost T4 to T3 conversion again very helpful in patients that have those high levels of reverse T3 as because of the reasons I mentioned previously and then also there's some studies that show it may actually help reduce antibody levels um, in you know for, and for the autoimmune thyroiditis kind of subgroup there so one one combination one powerful combination is is using zinc combined with selenium um, to help you know not only improve T4 to T3 conversion but also to reduce T4 to reverse T3 conversion right and then also balance the immune system because they both kind of complement one another um, again you you are going to need these in high enough dosages so generally I, I recommend you know starting out with 200 micrograms of selenium maybe going up to 400 depending on how you're doing but that combo can be um, very potent so um, as I mentioned previously, we want to talk about adrenal support, um, but I want to put a primer on this. So instead of focusing on and calling kind of things a, a blanket umbrella term, adrenal fatigue, I want to focus on different subgroups of these, these adrenal related problems. So really we have kind of three populations here. We've got the patients who have decidedly low cortisol, right? So when you check your serum cortisol 8 a.m. or, you know, we'll talk about urinary, we'll talk about salivary later, but I'm just talking about serum levels right now. So let's say you check your serum level um, 8 a.m. and it's like a 4 or a 5, right? That's when you should have the highest amount of cortisol in your body. You have, if you fall in this category, you have low cortisol, okay? So that should be its own distinction, you know, its own, its own uh, disease entity. Then you have the patients who have normal, and by the way, all of these conditions I'm talking about present in a very similar way, right? So you've got low cortisol, normal cortisol, high cortisol, all presenting with the same kind of symptoms that fall under the the umbrella of adrenal fatigue but they really need to be differentiated because they're all treated differently okay so coming back we've got the low cortisol hypocortisolism is what i want to call that the sort of like normal cortisol levels um, however they obviously have some sort of cellular resistance or cellular signaling issue even though they have normal cortisol they still have symptoms right and then on the other side of things you've got high cortisol so hypercortisolism and again they share a lot of the symptoms except they have an increased risk for developing things like uh, insulin resistance and glucose intolerance and issues with glucose metabolisms, which kind of lead to different different issues. And I find that those patients who tend to have high cortisol also tend to have certain hormone imbalances like high testosterone, but usually just the free component, right? So they tend to be more on that kind of PCOS spectrum versus the kind of what I would say eucortisol patients who have normal cortisol levels but still have adrenal fatigue type symptoms versus the patients who have low cortisol. Now, the reason I want to distinguish this is because a lot of patients, they get it in their brain that they've got to know what's going on with their cortisol. So they get the, they pay three, 400 bucks for these salivary tests. And then they come back and their provider's like, yeah, guess what? Now you need adaptogens. It's like, okay, well, if your only treatment was adrenal adaptogens, who really, who cares what your cortisol was, if it was high, low, or normal, right? If, if you're taking that approach, then it doesn't really matter what your cortisol is. But if you understand that there's different issues with the cortisol levels in the serum, you can then change 
around the way that you, you address treating the adrenals, and then testing actually becomes helpful, okay? So just put that in the back of your head. I want to talk about using adrenal glandulars, adrenal adaptogens, and phosphatidylserine, okay? So if you have, um, you know, what I would say normal kind of U-cortisol levels and you still have the symptoms of adrenal issues, then, then definitely that's probably a signaling issue, and I would tend to recommend that you use the adaptogens and the glandulars for that problem, okay? Now, that's generally what I'd recommend, and I, I don't want you to think about um, cortisol in the sense that it's, or, or I'm sorry, the adrenal fatigue concept in the sense that, you know, over time your cortisol always poops out. That's actually not true. It's never been um, proven in, in the literature either, so I don't think that that actually happens. And those were all based, by the way, that, that, that theory was based on animal studies a long time ago. So what I want you to now consider is if, you've, if your U-cortisol levels, you know, ser as checked by the serum, 8 a.m. serum level, um, then consider glandulars and adaptogens. If you have low cortisol, that's a whole other thing. Now, adaptogens may be helpful for you, but increasing that cortisol level is going to be important. So you actually might want to consider um, other supplements to, to increase cortisol level or even medications like hydrocortisone to increase that cortisol level, right, provided you don't have insulin resistance and glucose metabolism and other things. Now, so, so you've got the U-cortisol, you've got the low cortisol, and those are the treatments for that. And then high cortisol levels, you, there are really only a couple things you can do for high cortisol, okay? Supplement-wise, you know, the only thing that attenuates that high cortisol level that's been shown in studies is to use phosphatidylserine, which can be very helpful for you. But it needs to be in doses high enough, you know, to actually attenuate that cortisol level. And attenuate means just lower it. Um, so, you know, just so you understand that. Um, so 600, 800 milligrams taken at night or throughout the day can actually help. And those studies were based off of patients who, who work out very, um, you know, like high-intensity uh, athletic what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like almost Olympic level, um, uh, people that train at that level. Um, the study was done in those patients. They, they had them work out. They gave them the phosphatidylserine. It attenuated that rise in cortisol that's seen after those high workouts. And actually I've seen in clinical practice it can help drop that cortisol as well. So, and then there's only actually one other medication, which, which I'm, which I'm aware of that lowers it. And it's, um, uh, Corlin, which is a, I think it was previously actually, um, uh, a medication used for abortion, um, but it actually tends to interfere with cortisol signaling and such. So it can be helpful for not lowering the levels, but increasing the resistance that cortisol has at the cellular level. So obviously we want to avoid that if possible and stick to the supplements. But really the point of all this is to say tailor the supplements to the level of your cortisol and don't consider this all under the umbrella of adrenal fatigue, but look at it differently about what's going on with the cortisol itself. So um, next one up is probiotics and prebiotics. Really, obviously, these, you know gut health is important, but I want to make one distinction here. Generally, patients who have hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's have increased risk for developing certain GI-related issues, and we're going to go over this a little bit later. But they tend to do better uh, with soil-based organisms and lower amounts of prebiotics initially because oftentimes the decreased motility that comes with low thyroid hormone predisposes to overgrowth, right? Because if the food's moving slower, you know, through the GI tract, it, there's a higher risk for over um, digestion and fermentation of from the bacteria itself, which, you know, they're having a heyday. It's like Thanksgiving Day for your bacteria every single day. So they grow and overpopulate, right? And you don't necessarily want that. And if you provide prebiotics, which is really just food for bacteria, if you provide a lot of prebiotics, um, you know, it, it, that, that you can't digest, but the bacteria can, you might have worsening symptoms of gas, bloating, and constipation while you feed these bad guys. So you want to be careful. Well, they're not necessarily bad. They're just overgrown. But you want to be, want to be careful with using prebiotics and probiotics, at least initially, if you, especially if you're what I would consider you know, treatment naive, meaning you haven't really messed around with your GI tract. So consider that when you do it. Low amount of prebiotics. 
Um, and even certain um, probiotics can actually kind of spark up that um, and, and flare up constipation and, and gas and bloating. So be careful. Pre, uh, soy-based organisms shouldn't do that so much. Um, but again, it's not a sure thing. Um, vitamin D and K2. Now here's an interesting thing. We could talk about this for a long time. Really, uh, well, let me just talk about this first. So vitamin D is important because it's involved in proper development of bone and muscle, regulates the immune system, um, can actually help prevent in high, well, in, in, in normal doses, can help prevent autoimmune disease, assuming you have a normal amount of your body. Number of other things, right? It's, it's very helpful. I know you guys know that vitamin D is helpful. But what I want to kind of talk about here is the fact that most recommendations revolve around higher doses of vitamin D. So they're saying, hey, I want your vitamin D in the 70 to 80 range, right? Now, they're kind of basing that off the fact that low doses are involved with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, decreased you know, issues with calcium signaling, et cetera, increased risk of autoimmune disease, everything like that. But the interesting thing is there's a lot of studies in low levels. There's not a lot of level, there's not a lot of studies showing that those high levels are actually recommended or even good for the body. In fact, what few studies exist they, um, they actually show somewhat of a, a negative response that patients have, like increased risk of cardiovascular disease and high levels of the free and active D3 in the body, but low levels of the, one of the um, metabolites, which can cause issues. So it, it's kind of like those recommendations don't necessarily come from the right place. So instead, what I think we need to do is we kind of need to take a step back. And I'll give you a, a again, this is kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about today, but it turns out that those higher levels are probably made worse by vitamin K2 deficiency and maybe even the other fat-soluble vitamins deficiencies, we think. We don't know for sure. Um, so the recommendation that I would make, and this is what I do on myself, so I, I feel comfortable making this um, to you guys, is that you want to probably get that vitamin D level to a good level, maybe in the 40 to 50 range, but not only supplement with D3, but also supplement with K2 so that you make sure that if you have super high levels of vitamin D, you don't get the calcium dysregulation and signaling that occurs at that level without the proper um, other fat-soluble vitamins that can help kind of assist with that calcium uh, movement in the body. So get around the, you know, my new recommendation is probably around the 40 to 50 range and then concurrent supplementation with vitamin K2 to ensure that. And I go over this, you can get like what, what I do is I actually take higher, higher doses of vitamin K, uh, vitamin K2, not vitamin K, but vitamin K2 in addition to my vitamin D3. Um, and that's kind of the way that I, I do it. So, but the supplement that I recommend here is really a combination of both if, because that's just easier for people. They kind of like to just do one thing. So, but in, in reality, you could just do vitamin K and vitamin D3 together. Um, and generally somewhere in the two to 5,000 range is probably good for most patient patients. Um, moving on, uh, vitamin B12 talked about vitamin B12 a lot. My recommendation for hypothyroidism patients and Hashimoto's patients is to use either a sub-Q injection or, or IM injection or even uh, sublingual if possible. Try not to get it um, mixed in with other supplements because of absorption issues and try not to put it in capsular form um, or tablet or whatever it is unless that tablet's uh, dissolvable sublingually. In my experience, um, sublingual forms of B12 tend to be inferior to, to shots even, so that's why I generally recommend the, the shots for most of my patients if they're B12 deficient. And as a matter of fact, most th hypothyroid patients, in fact, I included a study in here, uh, yes, that says there is about a 40% prevalence of vitamin B12 deficiency in hypothyroid patients. So even if you're taking a level thyroxine or whatever, thyroid hormone supplementation, natural desiccated thyroid or T3, whatever, there's still a very high chance you're vitamin B12 deficient. So many, and I mean many, just in the subgroup that we're looking at in this one study, there was 40% uh, of patients had it. So it's four out of 10. That's a huge. Now, here's the other interesting thing. This study noticed that, 
and I'll, I'll do a quote here, replacement of B12 level B12 leads to improvement in symptoms, although a placebo effect cannot be excluded as a number of patients without B12 deficiency also appear to respond to B12 administration. So this is where it gets interesting, and this is something that I've seen in my patients as well. I, I don't know that you can, and I feel pretty confident saying this, I don't know that serum B12 levels, even with the addition of MCV and homocysteine, are the best way to assess B12 status in the body, especially intracellularly. Furthermore, I think there's a subgroup of patients who do really well on what I would call supra-physiologic levels um, of, of B12 in their body. And I have a number of these patients who will not, you know, and this study says that it's probably due to the placebo effect. I don't necessarily think that's true. I don't know that it's not true. Um, but what I can tell you is I've seen this also. And I have a number of patients who will not go without B12 shots. They love it. They provide them so much energy. Um, they, it doesn't matter. They've been doing it for you know, week after, you know, week after week after week, and they won't stop doing it because of how it makes them feel. So my thought is there's probably some patients who have a need for super physiologic levels, probably that should be differentiated from the placebo effect. Could it be placebo? Sure. You know, I don't know for sure, but um, I think there's probably something else at play there. So just realize that even if you have normal levels of B12, you might be one of those patients who does better, um, you know, subjectively and, and symptomatically taking B12. So it's kind of like, it's kind of worth the trial no matter where you sit really. And the benefit of, of B12 is that it's a water-soluble vitamin, meaning it's really hard to get toxic as long as you have, you know, um, functioning kidneys, because that means you're just going to pee it right out. So don't worry about getting too much, unless of course you have one kidney or you have chronic kidney disease, okay? Don't just, you know, take it willy-nilly. But if you have functioning kidneys and you're relatively young and you're drinking enough water, you know, you're probably not going to have any concern for getting toxic. Now, what can it do for you? Um, most of the patients is what say, well, vitamin B12 deficiency may um, uh, present with any or, or all of these symptoms. The reason I mention this is because it, they can kind of mimic some of the other symptoms of hypothyroidism, right? So fatigue or a subjective sense of having low energy, that's a very common sign of B12 deficiency. Shortness of breath or difficulty catching your breath, especially with exertion or exercise. So that's, that's an interesting one I don't see talked about a lot, but something that a lot of my patients experience. Of course, changes in mood, including depression or anxiety, um, even dementia. I didn't want to include that because it's, you know, whatever, but it can. Um, uh, deficiency can lead to brain fog, difficulty concentrating, inability to pay attention, or ADD or ADHD-like symptoms. Then, of course, macrocytic anemia, um, as measured by the MCV, which is why the MCV is an important marker for testing this. And then, of course, other nerve issues, right? So numbness and tingling and things like that. In fact, peripheral neuropathy could be caused by a B12 deficiency. In fact, some uh, medications deplete B6 and B12, um, and can actually promote these numbness and tinglings and, uh, or changes in nerves, I should say, and then the replacement kind of completely resolves. So you should consider all those things. Again, um, you can check, it's kind of beyond the scope here, but check serum B12, check homocysteine, check MCV. Those are the three ways that I kind of look at it. And then subjective symptoms, right? If someone's been replacing, uh, you know, they, they replace their thyroid hormone, but they're still symptomatic and you're like, well, you're, you know, you look therapeutic on your blood work, then consider these other things. Like a trial of B12 is certainly worth it, especially if you have a lot of cognitive issues, depression, sleep, anxiety, all those other things. So again, we could talk about B12 for forever. Um, but you know, just for the sake of, um, brevity, I'm going to move on here. Next thing is that I've added is supplements to support sleep. And this is so important, guys. I go into detail here. I'm not going to do all this stuff, but uh, what I want to say is a couple things here. So um, here's the interesting thing that, that for, for you guys, it, you know, you can summarize it all up to here. Obviously, you're you're not going to be able to lose weight if you have lack of sleep. It's going to change your insulin patterns, glucose metabolism, blah blah blah. But what's important here is lack of sleep can actually trigger autoimmune disease, right? So that's a big thing already. And then the second thing is lack of sleep 
in, is associated with a high level of TSH. So just forget about all the other things I just mentioned and consider this. Lack of sleep means lack of, you know, decrease in thyroid hormone. Now the interesting thing in this study is that lack of sleep led to high levels of TSH, but it also led to high levels of circulating thyroid hormone. And at first glance, you might be like, well, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Actually, it probably does because what is, what is a lack of sleep? What does that lead to? Chronic stress, right, on the body. How does your body deal what happens to thyroid function when your body's under chronic stress? Well, several mechanisms happen, right? You may have normal levels of circulating thyroid hormone in the blood, but you have abnormally high levels of reverse T3 and you develop a cellular resistance to thyroid hormone, right? So that's probably what's happening in these patients who have high TSH and high T4 and T3 levels. We don't know for sure because the study didn't test it, but the, but the point is lack of sleep decreases thyroid function, period. That's all she, anything else I say is, well, obviously important, but uh, well, you know, that, that's what I think. But um, hopefully, the one thing you get out of this, lack of sleep, decreased thyroid function, okay? Which makes sleep, from your perspective, absolutely critical. So I have a ton of things that I talk about here. I've been uh, doing a ton of research on sleep just, you know, from a personal level as well, but also um, for, for you guys. And so I put a lot of these recommendations in here. I'm going to come up with an article just on sleep itself because of how important I really think it is. But you know, go through this list and, and check it out. Um, basically, the gist of it is I want you to start out kind of easy and then increase in terms of the, the supplements and, and the what you do to get sleep with the intent of getting eight hours of sleep. I think the most important thing too also is to, to recognize that most patients have a pretty big sleep debt. Okay, it's kind of like a credit card. Um, it, it, the, the bigger the, the debt gets, the worse it is for you, right? And you have to pay it off. So think of sleep the exact same way. Um, in some studies, they've shown that when, you, when patients... Uh, um, repay the sleep debt and they put them in a dark room for up to 14 hours, um, you know, they have no idea what time it is or anything like that. They just stick them in there and they just say, hey, sleep as long as you can. Most people will sleep up to 12 hours for a couple weeks to repay that debt. Just put that into perspective, guys. There is probably a huge amount of debt that you are lacking that you weren't even realizing it. That's reducing thyroid function, that's increasing your ability, you know, decreasing your ability to lose weight, increasing your insulin um, resistance, increasing um, your glucose levels. This needs to be taken care of. So generally start with 5-HTP. Again, this is real. We're just doing brief here, but go through it, read into it, dig into this post. But um, start with 5-HTP tends to be kind of on the light end. So if you, you know, you have light sleep and you're not too bad, do the 5-HTP. Move on to the addition of 5-HTP um, and other herbs with the addition of melatonin. Don't be scared of melatonin. I've tested a lot of patients with sleep issues. I've tested their urinary excretion of melatonin. It's expensive, but I've done it. And almost always are they low if you have low sleep. In fact, mine on a scale of 90 to 50 in my urine was like a six, okay? And this was this was after residency, sure, but the point is mine was incredibly low. So as a result, I do supplement with melatonin, I think. Um, so don't be scared of that necessarily. Your sleep is gonna be more important than that. And then uh, the la kind of the, the final tier in terms of strength and efficacy and potency are the GABA potentiators and the serotonin potentiators. So again, those are pretty strong. They're not medications, right? I wouldn't actually recommend you use medications to get to sleep. If you're doing that, you're doing it wrong. But these other supplements tend to be stronger. So go down the list. Um, so moving on, I wish I had more time to talk about all these things, but we'd be here for a very long time if I did. Um, let's just jump to the, the supplements about um, GI related issues here. So I kind of broke this down. Again, what you really need to do is figure out what your issue is. Don't just, you know, take like a leaky gum supplement because you you realize, hey, I've got Hashimoto's. I probably have leaky gut. Let me take a leaky gut supplement. doesn't really make any sense. Do not do it that way. Instead, focus on certain conditions. So the ones that I recommend here, 
constipation, right? You know if you're constipated or not. You should have one bowel movement per day, okay? Um, gas and bloating, you know if you have gas and bloating, right? If you have acid reflux, again, you know. It's a symptom. You know if you have it. And then this one's a little more difficulty. If you do know, I did improve some supplements for leaky gut, but I don't want you to just take it if you have autoimmune disease. Because a lot of patients are come to me and they're like, well, you know, I, I have an autoimmune disease, so I must have leaky gut. It's like, eh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, lots of things can trigger, trigger autoimmune disease from stress or death of a loved one to, you know, even lack of sleep that we talked about. It doesn't mean that you have all these issues. Um, but if you do know you have leaky gut and increased intestinal permeability, um, either by testing with zonulin or some other things, then sure, you do want to take these things. But don't just take them all the time. So you can kind of go through here and see what I recommend and why, um, including some of the supplements I've been, I've been changed over, that has changed over time in terms of my recommendation. Um, and then last but not least, we talk about iodine. Just be careful with iodine. Um, it can be very helpful. I, I, again, I've never really seen, well, with few exceptions related to the GI and B12, I can't say that a lot of these supplements will completely turn around your entire condition, although they will help. Um, iodine, I've seen a couple of patients um, turn the corner with it. Um, so that it's an interesting supplementation to con or supplement to consider. Just be careful with it because I've also seen it in about two, maybe three patients of mine that I've treated. It actually triggers some some autoimmune issues and make their condition worse. So it can happen, but I do think the that risk is overstated in most people. Generally, if you take it with selenium, that that risk tends to be greatly reduced. In fact, I've had patients who who didn't tolerate previously, but added selenium, they tend to tolerate. So just consider that. You can read more about it in some of the the links that I've had. Um, if you want to start with it, start low, and then you can kind of increase your dose. So I, we kind of go over that. Um, and then again, so here's kind of the recap, recap guys. So I hope you've uh, enjoyed that. I probably will have to go over and go through each of these supplements and why I've made these changes to my recommendations and, and just kind of how it's impacted you know, my, my ability to treat patients and the, the results and the outcomes I get. Um, and so, but again, just realize that this is, this, uh, you know, every person's different, right? And, and every provider is going to have their own recommendations about what they use because what they use hopefully works for them. I can just tell you that if you've seen my case studies and you've looked at the, the patients of mine and such, you probably have seen those results. And I, you know, I'm very transparent about that. And I'm not afraid to tell you that some of these recommendations have changed. And I, they, you know, I'm not, I don't get everything right, right off the bat hundred percent of the time, but this is, this represents at least now and going into the year of 2017, the most up-to-date, my most up-to-date recommendations for patients with Hashimoto. So again, hope you guys found this helpful. Um, I'd love it if you, uh, we either subscribe to the channel, leave a, leave a comment. If you have any questions, like it, Whatever it is, doesn't matter. Um, let me know, and I'll try and get to your questions as soon as I can. Um, but anyways, hope that hope this was helpful for you guys.